What's up, Elevate City fam? Thanks so much for tuning in for the final installment in our series, End the Epidemic. Today, I'm preaching a message titled Alternative Medicine. Alternative Medicine, because we believe that the world's prescription for the epidemic of loneliness is not working. We believe that the Bible prescribes a more excellent way. I hope that this message challenges you, inspires you, and causes you to be the kind of contagious community that we see in the early church. Before you go, make sure to hit that subscribe button and be blessed. Elevate City Church, I'm going to need you to get on your feet and give God praise in this place one more time for all the stories, for all of his faithfulness, for all of the baptisms, for all the incredible things that God has done in this house, in this place, as we've launched this journey at Elevate City Church. This is our last day at the cinema, people. God is expanding. He is growing. This, this small little thing that started in a movie theater is becoming a movement. I'm so grateful for it. I feel like I feel like we need to maybe take a moment of silence to mourn the loss of those comfy seats. I don't know about you guys. I know some of y'all are going to miss them chairs. I'm pretty pumped. It means that you uh, recovering back row Baptist can't sleep in my sermon anymore. I see you back there. Now, I'm grateful for this place. What an unbelievable starter home it's been. The fact that we got to gather here and all that God has seen, but that he is still on the move, that he's still got more people he wants to rescue, that we've got to create space for the searching, that we've got to create room for those who have been passed over and missed and who are still lost and who still don't know God's love. And so next week, we are moving to the Atlanta Perimeter Marriott. If you're just tuning in online, this thing's expanding and we want for you to come with us. We'll be gathering on February 7th there, and that's where we'll be having our online or our in-person services and streaming online and if you want to get more involved more engaged we're going to invite you on february the 6th to come to a dream team dinner and training um that's gonna be on saturday night at 4 30 you can come and pray over the space with us see the space set up get trained to be a part of it to not just watch but really be a part of what god is doing here and then we're going to share a meal together as we step into this new leg of the journey invite you to come and be a part of that it's going to be epic well who's ready for the word y'all ready for that word Let's stay standing as we read God's word today. We're the kind of church that stands on God's word. If you have your Bibles, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, I'm going to preach from one of the most famous passages of scripture in all of the Bible. And this is what it says. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple courts and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. To close out this series and the epidemic, I want to preach a message for you today titled Alternative Medicine. Alternative Medicine. You can go ahead and grab a seat. Anyone else got a wife that's also a witch doctor? I don't mean that my wife's a witch and she is definitely not a doctor, but she is a Witch doctor. I mean, she's like into essential oils. She makes me take like, you know, uh, elderberry syrup. The other day she tried to give me something called cat's claw, okay? And I just want you to know that if cat's claw is not an ingredient in a witch's cauldron, I don't know what is. 
the other day, Kayla had this like medicine concoction. It was like all these pills and vitamins and substances. And there was like this, this medicine shot, I'll call it. And it was full of who knows what. There was like cod liver oil in it. There was um, vitamin, I don't know, Z. Um, there was wheatgrass. It looked like there was a living organism swimming around in there ready to eat me, okay? And so before I would take this shot, I really had to stop and pause and think and contemplate like the health of our marriage. Like, are we in a good spot right now? Because either A, this shot means that she really loves me and is trying to take care of me, or B, she's about to poison me, okay? Like, those were the two options. Um, I'll be honest, I used to not really understand alternative medicine. I used to be a skeptic. I'm a bit of what you'd call a traditionalist, but then I started seeing medicine commercials. Have you guys seen medicine commercials by show of hands? Any of y'all witnessed some of these things that are happening on our television? Um, the other day I saw this medicine commercial for uh, muscle cramps for muscle cramps. Y'all seen this one? And, um, you know, there was the lady and she had muscle cramps and she was like, you know, trying to, you know, move it around. And the guy's voice who's on all of those commercials comes over and it's like, do you suffer from muscle cramps after working out? I'm like, dude, everybody suffers from muscle cramps after working out. And then it's like, well, if you do take flexor, flexor, the side effects only include depression and nausea, vomiting, near-death experiences, suicidal thoughts, and paranoia. I'm like, hold on, time out. You're telling me that this girl traded cramping for crazy, all right? Like, I'm going, maybe let's just consider the alternative medicine of, I don't know, stretching. Just try, you know, the airplane or like the behind the head. Like, let's just try this so that we don't have to deal with, this, with the side effects of flexor, right? Like, I don't, I don't know about you, but I feel like the alternative version of stretching is better than you turning into Russell Crowe, a beautiful mind, locking your doors, hiding your windows and running from the Gestapo because you had a Charlie horse, right? <laughs> like, I feel like there's got to be another way. Like, there's got to be an alternative form of medicine. You know, I was doing some research, and um, if you take Flexor, one of the side effects is um, paranoia, right? And so um, then you're, you're anxious and you're worried. And so if you're paranoid, then you've got to take antidepressants. But the problem with taking antidepressants is one of the side effects of antidepressants is muscle cramps. So <laughs> you choose. Do you want to be scared or stiff? Stiff or scared? It's your choice. Everyone knew, like, what are we talking about? I, uh, I want to propose for you today that the world's prescription to the epidemic of loneliness has some side effects that are too severe. I want to propose that what the world does and how the world tries to treat the issues in our soul and the loneliness that we're experiencing and the loneliness that we're carrying has way too many side effects and that it's not worth it. The world tells us to numb our loneliness with Netflix. It tells us to silence it with social media. It tells us to sedate it with success, to drown it out with our careers. It says work harder, achieve more, get more money, climb the corporate ladder, have more influence, be a lone wolf. But you know the problem with a lone wolf? A lone wolf is not a good thing in nature. It's because there was something wrong with that wolf and they abandoned their tribe and they walked away, but culture's just trying to push us into that. Lest you think this isn't really an epidemic, let me just read for you some news headlines. The Surgeon General says, there's a loneliness epidemic, the Washington Post. Young people report more loneliness than the elderly, USA Today. 
The biggest threat facing middle-aged men isn't smoking or obesity, it's loneliness, the Boston Globe. Loneliness begets more loneliness, the Atlantic. How social isolation is killing us, the New York Times. Loneliness is an epidemic and the world's prescription is not working. What the world would tell you to do is medicate it with me. Medicate it with me. It's interesting. Statistically speaking, we live in the loneliest time in human history, perhaps. Right now, three out of five Americans would identify themselves as suffering from loneliness or experiencing loneliness on like a regular basis, right? And I find it interesting that we live in the loneliest time in human history when perhaps we also live in the most socially acceptable time to be selfish in human history. You ever think about that? We are in this day and age of radical individuality. The way that we make decisions and the way that we vote, the way that we think about politics, we don't look it through the lenses of we, we look it through the lenses of me. What's good for me and my situation? How is this gonna affect my taxes? What is this going to do to my community and my business and my unique set of circumstances and my education? We look at it through the lenses of me. We try to medicate our loneliness with me. We're pretty selfish. I don't know if you've noticed. And listen, I'm up here today telling you that I'm the number one offender, okay? No one's more selfish than me, okay? Um, I come home from work a lot of times, and um, I walk in the door, and immediately my wife, Kayla, she tries to hand me one of what our feels like right now, nine children. And um, we just have two, but it feels like nine right now. And she's like, here you go, you know, take them. And I'm like, well, girl, like, I need some me time, okay? And all the moms are judging me really hard, <laughs> And so my wife, in her brilliance, she goes, okay, she picks up Haddon and she goes, well, it's really great that when you say you look at Haddon that all you see is me. Enjoy your me time. <laughs> We're selfish, right? We're selfish with our time to the point that we've even titled it me time. We're selfish with our money. That's my money. You know, there's this growing trend that's happening in marriages right now, and I think that it's happening because the further and further that we get away from God's, from the biblical model of marriage and God's design for marriage, it just starts to erode. And so there's this thing happening in marriages. It's so common. I hear about it in marriage counseling and premarital counseling, and you can study the statistics on it where um, husband and wives live together in the same home, but they have separate bank accounts, separate bank accounts. And I think the reason that they have separate bank accounts is because divorce is so common and so prevalent that they're just, they're, they're hedging their bets. They're preparing for the future that if this thing doesn't work out, then we can make accounting really easy. Here's her money and here's his money and we can just go our separate ways. We're really selfish with money. And it's a big problem to live in the same house but have separate bank accounts, to have two bank accounts. Do you know why? Because the Bible says that a man should leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one bank accounts included but we're selfish with our money we're selfish with our time we are selfish with our careers and selfish with our hobbies and do we see the side effects do we see that what it produces like when we do this in marriage what this selfishness produces is it robs us of oneness of intimacy of closeness of connection there's so many side effects and so many different ways that we are selfish right now. Um, we are selfish with our weekends and we suffer from a lack of rest. We are selfish with our vacations and end up needing a vacation from our vacations. 
We are selfish with our hobbies, selfish with our families, selfish with our talents, selfish with our stuff. Many of us are even selfish with how we understand community or church. What's in it for me? Is it convenient for me? Do I like it? Do I like, do they play the songs that I like? Are the pastor's jeans tight enough? I assure you mine are. What's, what's in it for me? Do I like it? Do I fit in? Is this, is this good for me? Do I like these people? We're even selfish with the way that we look at community. And I know a lot of you guys are thinking like, Joey, Joey, I thought we were talking about loneliness. Why are we talking so much about selfishness? Let me ask it like this. Do you think that this cultural trend of being obsessed with self-care is because so few of us have people who actually do? Do you think the reason that we feel this overwhelming need to just do self-care and self-isolation and me time and my money and my hobbies and it's my weekend is because we are not connected to the kind of community that would liberate us and that would free us and that would grow us into people who lived full lives, vibrant lives, dynamic lives, lives full of depth and purpose and meaning. I'm here to tell you today that the medication of me is not going to set you free. Stop medicating it with self and start to consider an alternative way. Um, When we set out to do this series, I I wrote something down instantly in the very beginning when I was starting to put together ideas and routes that I wanted to take this series. And this is what I wrote down. I said, until uh, until we... And selfishness, we won't end the epidemic of loneliness. Until we end selfishness, we won't end the epidemic of loneliness. It's not going to happen until we realize how deeply we need each other, how deeply you need people, but also how deeply people need you. We're not going to end the epidemic of loneliness. It's not going to happen. I saw a quote this week that I thought was so interesting. It said, unchurched people... They aren't looking for an echo of the culture. They're looking for an alternative to it. They aren't looking for an echo of culture. They're looking for an alternative to it. You know, so what an echo of culture would be is you're lonely. Let me prescribe you a friend. But I want to invite you into an alternative of culture that says you're lonely. And let me not tell you what the world says, but what the word says. And it's that you're invited to be a part of a family. So much more than just friendship, so much more than just superfluous, superficial, surface level connection. I want to imagine together today what an alternative way of life could look like, where we don't treat church like a club, but we treat it like a family, where we don't see this as something that it's optional, but something that's necessary, where we don't act like this is okay when it's convenient, but that it's what we're desperate for and need so bad in our souls. I want for us to imagine what it would look like to be this kind of people who rely on each other and who need each other and who lean on each other. When you're not strong. That's what I'm after this morning. A real community of people. And so let's do this. Let's look at the early church. Because they were radicals. They were alternatives. They marched to the beat of a different drum. Let me show you how they lived in a way that made loneliness feel forgotten. Acts 2.42, it says, and they devoted themselves 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. You can't miss this this morning. The early church devoted themselves. Today's church dabbles. The early church was devoted, today's church dabbles when it's convenient, when it's easy, when, it's, when it works, when I've got time for it, when it fits in my schedule, I'll take it at my own pace. I won't prioritize it, I won't schedule it, I won't calendar it. If I can make it, great, but if I can't, oh well. We dabble, we dabble. I was talking to the team this week and I said, hey, in 2021, so much has changed. COVID, pandemic, people's lives, their careers, they're displaced, they've got flexibility, they work from home so they can work at a lake or a beach or whatever. There's so many moving parts in our society and our culture right now. What do you think people will miss church for now? What do you think people will miss church for? And here is the sad reality is that the answer is anything. Anything that's a little bit better, just a little bit better of an offer. My kids got a sport to play. I've got an opportunity to go for a round of golf. Some friends from out of town want to grab brunch. I can go to the lake. It's rainy, so let's stay in. It's sunny, so let's go play outside at the park. Any excuse. Any excuse to miss church. And listen, please don't hear me telling you that you can never miss church. I'm going to miss it in a couple weeks. Please don't hear me telling you that, like, like, like trying to make you feel guilty. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just trying to make you aware that you've got unrealistic expectations about what you can get out of this because of what you're putting into this. They were devoted and we dabble. And that's the reason that we see a whole lot of difference. A whole lot of difference between what happened in the early church and what's happening in the modern church today. You see, I, 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 I want you to see this. I, I can't have you miss this. Acts 2, 43. This is the early church was devoted to these things. They were consistent in these things. And look at what happens. All came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. We do occasionally what they did regularly, which is why we live normally and they lived miraculously. You cannot expect, you cannot expect to make a deposit, uh, make an investment uh, once a month into community and expect a revival. You can't expect to show up every now and again and see change in your life. That's not the way that it works. If you look at the correlation of the text, I just love studying the text. I love the rhyme and the rhythm and all the pieces of the puzzle you can put together. The scripture says they met together day by day and the Lord added to their number day by day. What Jesus will do through you is always an overflow of what's happening in you. When we gather together in these spaces, these communities, these places, when we show up for Sunday church, believing that breakthroughs come in, when we scatter in small groups throughout the week to study God's word and to pray for one another and to hold each other accountable, what we're doing is we're making an investment in this community. And the more investments we make in this community, the more it starts to overflow into the community. It's very much a, what's happening in here starts to fill the streets out there. And so we don't see miracles regularly because we don't show up enough often to see them they were so devoted and we so dabble why why do you think that is why were they so devoted and why do we so dabble i think the reason is because we're distracted we are so distracted 
we're distracted by jobs and we're distracted by kids' sports and we're distracted by culture and we're distracted by stuff that we think that we need. We're so distracted and they witnessed. They witnessed. They saw it happen right before their eyes. They saw the Savior get murdered. They saw him hanging there bloody and gruesome and being to shreds on a cross. They saw the one who was innocent, the one who was without guilt and without sin and without error and without wrongdoing, take his life and climb up on a cross so that he could die and suffocate on his own blood so that you didn't have to. They witnessed it. And I've got to believe that when you understand what Jesus has done for you, it produces devotion to him. Devotion to the things of God and devotion to the ways of Jesus and devotion to his body, the church. I've got to believe that the fact that they witnessed, they witnessed the risen Christ. That they saw with their own eyes, they were eyewitnesses, that they went to court for this, they were put on trial for this. They wrote about this in, in history, in, in literature, they wrote it down to make sure that it was documented, that we really saw this. We really saw this man murdered on Friday. He, he died. He died. He was gone. We thought it was over. But three days later, we saw him gloriously, victoriously defeat sin and cancel the curse and rise from the dead. And because of that, we can't go back to the same. We can't go back to the same lives and the same priorities and the same calendar. We can't go back to prioritizing success and acclamation and, and being no. We can't go back to that. We want to live a new way because of what happened on Sunday. Because of what happened on Sunday produces devotion to Jesus every day. It is not casual. It is all-consuming. Changes these men's lives. Turns their worlds upside down. I uh, had the unbelievable opportunity a couple of years ago to go to India, myself and Thomas, and we spent 21 days going throughout India and Indonesia. I'll tell you stories about this trip for the rest of my life because it changed my life. And um, while we were there, we went into this village in India is primarily Hindu, makes up something like 85% of the population. And we were actually near an area that's a militant form of Hinduism. It's this rising thing that's happening in that religion right now. And it was honestly one of the days that just felt more like Jesus in my whole life. We're literally going through these villages and praying for people. And like, it's, just, it's very powerful. But at the end of the day, we drive several hours and we make our way to this other village. And and there's this woman in this Hindu village, remote Hindu village, and she is the only Christian in her town. You, you, until you experience something like this, you really can't feel the weight of this. She's the only person who believes Jesus is the Son of God, the only person who believes the Bible is the inspired word of God. She's the only one. She has no friends, no community. She's been ostracized and isolated within culture because of her beliefs. And there is this pastor in India who we met, who he and his wife drive four hours every single Sunday to just pastor and shepherd and do church with this one woman and her three kids. This woman who's been abandoned by her husband, he's an alcoholic, he's left her all alone, and I'm just looking at her, and I'm looking at him, and I'm going how they're fighting for it, and how they're devoted to it, and I'm going, if there's a Netflix special that we want to watch, we miss it. What is wrong with us? I want to see the kind of church that is devoted that is really, really devoted, that takes this stuff seriously, that realizes that this life is not all that there is. And so we cannot live for this life. We've got to live for another world with another set of priorities, with a march to the beat of a different drum, have different rhythms and different patterns and different priorities. 
that's what Jesus came to set us free from. He came to set us free from the bondage of having to only live for this world. We are people who pick a countercultural way of life, an alternative way to go through our time here on planet Earth. What were they devoted to? Because I, I've got to believe that the things that they were devoted to caused something to happen within them. Well, the scripture says that they were devoted first to the apostles' teachings. They were devoted to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I think that it's really important if we want to make loneliness feel forgotten and isolation eradicated that we bring God's word into the equation. Because when people are lonely and they feel like no one's talking to me, no one's speaking to to me, the, the voice that they need to hear the loudest is the voice of God, amen? We wanna be people who build our lives on the Bible. We wanna be Bible people, scripture people, people who take God's word really seriously, who don't tamper with it, who don't allow culture to change what the word says, but who read and obey the word, believing that the word will change us and that we will change culture. This is our call. Well. Joey, what about all the stuff that the Bible says that's really difficult to hear? I don't, I don't think that we're going to be able to be a radically inclusive community. I don't think that this thing can become contagious, this alternative medicine, because the Bible's tough to swallow. Like, what about what it says about sex? What about what it says about marriage? What about what it says about the poor and the rich and hell? Like, Joey, the Bible's pretty tough. I saw this quote. It says, if a religion isn't different from the surrounding culture, if it doesn't critique and offer an alternative to it, it dies because it's seen as unnecessary. Do you know the beauty about standing on God's word and believing it when everybody else criticize, criticizes it is it offers another way. People, if our version of Christianity becomes this watered down, palpable, easy pill to swallow, not difficult to ingest kind of thing, then nobody's interested in it. If our lives look just like their lives, then why do they need the stories that we tell? Why do they need the truths that we teach? We need to have some alternative truths, some, hey, I don't see it that way. Hey, I don't think that way. Hey, I don't live that way. Hey, I don't talk that way. Hey, I don't walk that way. There is another way I want us to be the kind of people who go you act our friends the outside world they go you actually believe that like, you actually submit to the book like you actually follow what it says like you don't play games with it you don't you don't maybe like just morph it around a little bit pick what you want no 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 we don't we actually believe that the great theologian pink was right I'm a hazard to myself I'm my own worst enemy don't let me get me okay we believe it's true that we are our own worst enemies and that we don't know what's best for ourselves. Uh, you, you can't miss this because this is what's happening in culture, okay, right now. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, it says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears that they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. I just want, I want to read that one more time because it was in the Bible. It said that it was happening. It's happening right now. 2 Timothy 4, 3, For the time is coming. When people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears, they will accumulate themselves teachers to suit their own passions. If reading the Bible always makes you feel good, I want for you to know you're not reading the Bible. And I want for you to know that if you have a preacher who at the end of his message always makes you feel good, he's likely not for your good. You know, one of the things about like medicine at times is when you take like a shot or you're going to go in th for a procedure, you ask a doctor like, hey, is this going to hurt? 
And oftentimes the doctor goes, yeah, it's going to hurt a little bit because he knows that the sting is worth it to get the medicine inside of you. And sometimes truth has to hurt you in order to heal you. It's difficult to hear the word of God preached at times. It presses up against you. It begins to expose your sinfulness and your selfishness and your proneness to wander. And I just want us to be the kind of church who goes, no matter what it says, no matter how hard it is to handle, no matter what it costs us, we're just going to hold this thing up. We're going to believe that it really breathes life into dry bones. We're going to believe that it's our ultimate standard. You know, we live in a culture that's very biblically ignorant, very biblically ignorant. You know, the reality is, is that statistically speaking, many of you have three to five Bibles, three to five Bibles. And so you can think about it, right? You got that one Bible that your grandma gave you with the naked baby angel on it. It's King James Version. You can hardly use it. Then you got that other Bible. It was a study Bible right after you got saved and got baptized. You haven't seen that one in a while. And then finally, you have the Bible that you probably stole from a church, right? Like, we've got three Bibles, but very few of us have any idea what they actually say. So you get people all of the time who quote things from the Bible, like cleanliness is next to godliness. It's in the Proverbs. No, it's not, bro. Benjamin Franklin said that. <laughs> you get people who say things like God helps those who help themselves. Second opinions, 918. <laughs> and that's all it is, bro. It's an opinion. It's nowhere in there. You know that 12% of Bible-believing Christians think that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife? That's crazy. I think that there is something about being united around the word of God that will form us together as a people who, who look like Jesus and who love like Jesus. I think the reason that these people were so radical is because they believe such radical things. They submitted to such radical truths, and I just want to see that happen in us. But they didn't just devote themselves to the apostles' teachings. They also devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, fellowship is an attempted translation at a fascinating Greek word. It's koinonoa, koinonoa. And for this word, we have no English equivalent. It's really rare that it happens in the Bible where there's a word that there's not even close to a word. This word fellowship had to be invented to try to describe this thing, koinonia. And it means the intimate sharing of oneself with another. Researchers have um, started to look at this epidemic of loneliness, and one thing that's becoming very apparent and very clear is that it's not the quantity of social interactions that combats loneliness, it's the quality. Having just three or four close friends is enough to ward off loneliness and reduce the negative health consequences associated with that state of mind. And unfortunately, what's happened for too many of us is we've traded deep, meaningful friendships for a couple thousand followers on Instagram. We live these surface level lives. We have shallow conversations. We never jump into the deep end. I think one of the reasons that many of us feel so lonely is because we feel so unknown. We have so many few safe spaces, so many so few spaces to ask the tough questions of life, to work out the doubts and the difficulties and the struggle, to be honest about our sin, to, to believe that it's okay to be okay, but not okay to stay that way. We, we, we don't have a place where we're truly known. And I just want you to know today that to be 99% known 
And 1% unknown is to be unknown. To not have relationships that you can be honest about all of it, about what you're doing late at night, about what's happening in that bank account, about what thoughts are swirling around in your mind, about your dreams and your desires and your future, about your tensions, somebody who sees your potential. Like if you don't have that, if you're 99% known but 1% unknown, then you're unknown. And the thing that's so terrorizing about that is that it gives the enemy a foothold. It gives him the opportunity to plant lies, to put temptations in your path that nobody else knew was going to be an issue for you. But the early church was known. They had this fellowship, this intimate sharing of their lives with one another. This, this kind of relationship that was exhibited between them, it wasn't about being nice to one another. It was about being iron to one another. It was about helping them become something. You see, belonging is about becoming. We belong to this community so that we can grow up into the likeness of Christ. It's not about just having a community that tells you that it's okay to stay in your sin, that it's okay to continue to lie, that it's okay to be in those horrible relationships and have those terrible habits. That's, that's not what it's about. We are not just going to start approval clubs at Elevate City Church where we all just sit in circles and wallow about somebody's sin and then just let them continue to live their lives. There's a definition for that. It's called insanity. And we don't want to see that happen. We're, we're not insanity. We're Christianity. We're a community that is trying to look more like Jesus, even when it's tough and even when it's difficult. And we need each other to do it. We need honest conversations. We need realness. We need depth. This is what we need. We, uh, we cannot get this version of community without consistency. Look at, look at what verse 44 says. It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Well, you can't have all things in common unless you talk about all things. You know that, right? Like, you got to have some real conversations to get to the point where you can make an assessment. Hey, that church has got everything in common. They've been talking about some stuff. And they've been talking about some stuff regularly and consistently and continually. They've got into the deep end. They've got into their past and their story and what they've gone through and their struggles. We cannot get this version of community without consistency. In order for us to experience fellowship and in order for us to have unity that is bigger than our differences, we got to spend some time together. We got to prioritize this stuff. We got to fight for this stuff. I, I think that when you look at the church today, the last thing that you would see is a, a community of people who have all things in common, yeah? Why is it that it seems like the church today is so divided and that church seemed so united? I think that it's because they prioritize these things because we don't know each other. We know our stances. They knew each other. Being devoted to each other and to the word of God and to his ideas and ideals, it started to inform their life by the word of God. And they started to live in this way. They started to have this radical proximity, this closeness. They loved each other enough to find common ground because they were both going to be standing on it. You see, when you really care about somebody and you get to know them, you work really hard to be united together even when you disagree. But when you don't take time to know somebody, to know their story, to know their past, to know how they got to where they're at, you just brand them a statistic. Well, you're just another failure, and you're just another addict, and you're just another person who fits with that hang-up and that issue. Maybe not. 
Maybe they do have some things that they need to grow on, but statistics need faces. And when a statistics gets a face, it starts to form your heart and it gives you grace and it gives you forgiveness and it reminds you of your sin and your need for a savior and the way that God's still working in you. I want us to be a messy church. A really messy church. A place where people roll up and everybody else is like, I don't expect to see that kind of person here. I want it to be full of diversity, of differences, and of backgrounds. I want for it to be a place where it is okay to not be okay. I want it to be a place for the forgotten and for the follower, for the doubter and for the disciple, for the wanderer and for the worshiper. Because I have this crazy belief that if we could sit at a table together, we would find out that we've got more in common than we don't, and that the tie of Jesus that binds us together is beautiful. I think that they got this. You know, communion, one of the things it says is it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread. And the breaking of bread is about communion. It's about this understanding that Christ's body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. Jesus was broken so that we could be brought together. And, and I think that them being in this habit, this rhythm of taking communion, of remembering the gospel, remembering the pot price that Jesus paid, the fact that his body was broken so that they could be together, made them determined to let nothing tear them apart but that people would just be included. People would just be together. You know, as I've thought about loneliness and community and friendships, um, I was listening to this podcast, and this podcast, this guy gave this advice. He said, one of the best advice I ever got on relationships is NTP. Let me hear you say it, NTP. And NTP means no toxic people. No toxic people. Now, I think that there's probably some great wisdom for that in some of your lives. I don't know that the three biggest voices of value in your life should be toxic people, right? I think that your inner circle should be really life-giving, affirming, encouraging, challenging people, people who make you want to look more like God and follow God. So I don't know that your inner circle needs to be NTP, no toxic people. I think that it's really great relationship advice. However, I think it's really bad biblical advice. When you become a Christian, you forfeit the right to not have toxic people because Jesus surrounded himself with toxic people. Hello, Peter. Hello, crazy Peter. Hello, Judas. Judas sat at Jesus' table, and so if you make a determination that I don't want to be around toxic people, difficult people, then you've determined you don't want to be like Jesus, okay? Jesus surrounded himself with really hard people and really difficult people so that he could be for those people what they did not have. He could be love, and he could be grace, and he could be an advocate, and he could walk patiently with them. What if Jesus would have given up on Peter? Who have you given up on? Because they're hard and because it's difficult. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm, here, I'm, I'm not trying to paint a picture of community that's pie in the sky and that's butterflies and rainbows. This junk is hard. I'm going to be real. People are awkward. <laughs> awkward. Like, I have this passion in my soul someday. The, the best class that I'm ever going to preach, I'm probably write a book on it, is like the stop being awkward class, okay? And every single Christian girl is like, Hallelujah. Because people are awkward and they can be really hard and really challenging and really difficult. Do you know what? That's probably how God looks at you sometimes. You know, I remember when Kayla and I got married and I, thought, I found myself thinking like I was doing all the right things. I'd be like romantic. I'm romantic, okay? I'd be like writing our poems and planning out like dinners and like just taking her on dates and like praying with her. I'm just, I felt like I'm doing everything right, but it's not always resulting in the results that I want. Bunch like I want, want, you know what I'm saying? So I'm just going like, what is happening right now? Like it, what, what is going on? Like I'm so frustrated. I'm so angry. Like I'm doing everything right. And I just heard God say to me, that reminds me of another relationship that I know about. 
where I did everything right and I pursued you and I was patient with you and I loved you and I was kind to you and it does not result in the results that I'm looking for. Man, this is the beauty of the gospel, and it only happens when we live life together, connected in community. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Prayer is the seed of revival, church. We are going to be a church that's got calloused knees. We're going to be a church that doesn't just say, oh, that's cool. Let me pray about that for you. But who stops right then, right there and prays. I want for there to be so many prayer parties that happen in the lobby. I want for there to be so many opportunities where we don't just say, hey, I'm going to get to that later. Forget about it and never do it. But we do it right then because we believe that, it's matter, that it matters and that there's power in prayer. I want for us to be, we, we got some guys in our church. They send like us these long prayer texts all the time they're like novels okay it's amazing but but that's that's the kind of culture that we want here where we believe that prayer actually works and that prayer changes our heart and that it can actually move the heart of god what are you praying about right now what kind of prayers are you praying i think that it can also inform the kind of prayers that we're praying inform what we think about community you know it it should be pretty staggering to most of us that when you read Jesus teaching his disciples to pray, he says things like, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Lead us not into temptation. You see, prayer is this very communal thing. Prayer gives us an opportunity to intercede for each other before the Father. It brings us together and unites us in, in a way that few other things do. That's why it's, it's supposed to be this communal expression, not this selfish thing. But we're going to be a church that prays and that is devoted to prayer and that believes in prayer and that fights for prayer. There's this other thing that happens. Verse 45 says, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. As any had need need so we've been talking about the alternative medicine a counter version of culture well culture tells you that what you need is to acquire as much money as much wealth as much stuff as much success you get a bigger house so i just remember you know buying a house and first home and it's like okay cool great and then like we sell that house and we buy a bigger home and a nicer home and then i'm like okay great and like what's next we just get a bigger home and a nicer home and like how long does this trend continue how many bedrooms doth one need and you buy this house with all this space and you go, well, we better get some more stuff. You gotta fill this junk up with stuff, stuff that we don't need, stuff. The other day I went and I looked in a box and I, I literally, there was not an item in the box that I knew, I didn't know what it was or where it came from. We just got a lot of stuff. We're just acquiring and accumulating for ourselves. If, if you realize there's this application, I'm gonna forget what it's called right now, but it's like something like the, um, the World Wealth App. And you can go on and you can plug in how much money you make and it will show you um, the like number of wealthy person that you are in the world. It will blow your mind. You just plug it in. I make X amount of money. Where am I? Wealth in the world. I guarantee you everybody in the room is in the upper 95%. It's just like a guarantee because you live in America. 
And so we have so much more money, so much more stuff, so much more things than the than we could have ever imagined and then the church ever did. And yet we're living lives where we continue to acquire for ourselves, but they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And I think that when we read that verse, sometimes it's like, oh, well, that's cute. Like, uh, I'll give a little bit to the offering. But let me just show you. This is, this is um, an extra biblical picture. It's an article, uh, an ancient writing that showed what one of the early church fathers, uh, they were trying to describe what it looked like watching this Christian community. Um, he says this, and there's among them a man that is poor and needy. And if they have not an abundance of necessities, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with the necessary food. So this is how committed that they were to serving and to sacrificing for others. If they couldn't pay for it, they would just not eat. They would fast and then give their food to the person who was needy. Like that's radical generosity. Um, one of my favorite pastors, he's always been so inspiring for me is Francis Chan. Everybody familiar with him? I just love Francis Chan. My favorite thing about Francis Chan is I don't actually think that he's like a great Bible teacher. I feel like what he does is he just reads the Bible and he's like, let's do it. <laughs> just big hands and just aggressive, let's do that. Um, but Francis tells this story about like reading through the book of Acts and looking at this with his elders and um, his church. And he says like, what if we actually did it? What if, what if we treated each other not like friends, not like church members, but like family, like the Bible says we are, that we were bought with the blood of Christ, that we were adopted by the father, that you are my brother and you're my sister. We're part of the family of God together and we cared for each other in that way. And so, you know, there are people who are dying today without hearing the gospel and we've got all these money and 401k accounts and social security accounts and savings accounts and retirement accounts. And what if we just threw that all into a pot, but made each other this guarantee that like, I'm going to take care of you. And if something happens to you, I'll make sure your boy goes to college and I'll make sure that your wife has enough food on the table. What if we loved each other that radically and saw eternity with that much urgency that we lived this way? It's mind blowing. It like feels uncomfortable to even consider. Everybody's all in on raw, raw community till I start talking about your money. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I really want this. But let me ask you, is selfishness producing joy? Is it giving you joy? How much is enough? Never. It's never enough. But living this countercultural, this alternative lifestyle that sacrifices for the good of others and so that as many possible could hear the gospel and respond to the good news of Jesus is the way that the early church lived. Francis goes on to tell this story and he talks about the way that he was reading through the gospels and in the gospels there's this story about Jesus throwing this banquet and he says I want for you to go to the highways and the byways to find the poor and the lost and the least and the marginalized those who can't do anything for you who cannot repay you I want for you to go find them and I want for you to bring them in and I want for you to throw this party that nobody else will throw a party for them you see we're always so concerned with meeting the needs of the poor that we never do anything that ascribes value to the poor we never celebrate the poor honor the poor and so he said what if we didn't just you know buy them clothes or take them to a pantry but like what if we threw them this big party like the bible actually says what if that's not just like you know a parable or an or an 
allegory or an analogy, but something that we should actually do. And so Francis did it. He said, okay, we're going to make these really incredible invitations and we're going to send them out to poor people all over our city. And we're going to, we're going to get a tailor who's going to buy them suits and who's going to make them, you know, dresses that fit to them. And we're, we're, we're going to get them all gifts, like really, really, really nice gifts, like outlandish, lavish gifts. And we're going to have this meal for them. That's just going to be unbelievable and incredible. It's going to be like multiple courses and there's going to be dancing. It's going to be this, this big ball to honor these people who everybody else has overlooked. Because it's going to be so great, but I have no idea how we're going to pay for it. Okay. So let's do it, but I don't have any money to do it with. And slowly but surely what starts to happen is people start to catch a vision for it. And so they start to make connections and, and like miraculously, all these things start to show up. Like, oh, my cousin's a tailor and like he could do it. And oh, this Best Buy is actually getting ready to like close down and everything's discounted. We could go buy some things. One of the coolest stories is they get to the point where they're getting ready to do the meal and and they're trying to get the food for the meal and their caterer ended up canceling. And so they're like, what are we going to do? We have no idea how we're going to get this food. And this grocery store calls them and they go, hey, um, I, we just got your number from somebody in the store. They said that you're a church, but um, all of our freezers just stopped working and we want to donate all of our meat to you. Like, that's crazy, right? That's radical. But this is what begins to happen when you live a life of sacrificial service. You get a front row seat to see the miracle. You get a front row seat to see God do the supernatural and the, and the unbelievable. And that's what I want to see us happen at Elevate City Church. Verse 46, it says this. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I don't know about you, but I want to see a movement that shifts society and that changes culture. I want to see an alternative offered to a world of acquiring and consumerism. I want to be the kind of contagious community that is irresistible to the outside world. One that is full of broken people, that is full of found people, and that is full of messy people, and that is full of grace people. But this life can't happen in our own strength. Way too many of us have been relegated to living lives in our own strength. And I believe that that's a sin. And I believe that today we should probably repent and say, I want life in God's spirit and with God's people that's beyond what I could do on my own. I want to see him do something through me that I could never do on my own. We've got some goals for Elevate City Church. And I was meeting with somebody this past week and they asked me, they said, hey, who knows those goals? And I realized the only people who know them are the people who work on staff here and I just want to put them before you right now, just a couple of them, just because this is the kind of community that we want to grow into that helps eradicate loneliness, makes isolation feel forgotten. Here's goal number one. We want to be a church where every year we baptize at least 365 people because we know that God is adding to our number day by day those who are being saved. And that sounds crazy. And that sounds like, well, that's a lot, guy. You seem pretty convinced and passionate. I don't know if I'm there yet. We're going to keep fighting till we get there where we're not just a one day a week church, but we're an everyday movement that is searching after people, that is chasing after people. We wanna see in year one, 
1% of the city of Sandy Springs call Elevate City Church home. Now that is 1,116 people, but we believe that Jesus left the 99 and went after the one, that he chases after the one until there is no one. And so that's what we want to do. We want to begin to make a dent in darkness. We want to make a place for young professionals and for people of every stage and phase of life to find their place in the kingdom of God. We want this year, third goal, to see 110% of our church engaged in groups in discipleship. 110%, I don't think you're good at math, preacher boy. Well, you're right, I'm not. But we want more people in discipling relationships, in community, authentic community, doing life together than we just have at a gathering. We care more about people participating than observing, more about them growing than just watching. And so we want to see these little communities of light, these little house churches that are scattered all throughout our community being a movement of Jesus. And I believe, I believe that we can grow up into this. I believe that we can really end the epidemic of loneliness in our city, in this generation, but it's going to take all of us together believing this with all of our hearts. I want to close our service out today by taking communion. You should have the elements on your chair and it's the juice and it's the bread and Jesus, the night before he was handed over to be betrayed and executed, he was with his disciples and he shared a meal together that's been called the Last Supper. The early church called it the breaking of bread. We call it communion because it's one of the beautiful ways for us to be together with God in what he's done for us. I want for you to know that when you were all alone, that when you were dead in your sin, that when you were running away from God, that you had, when you had no direction for your life, while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. He bled for you. He gave up everything for you. And he did it because he loved you and because he did not want you to live life alone. And so if you're a believer of Jesus, if you're one of his followers, I want for you in this next song, the band's gonna come and we're gonna worship together. I want for you to just maybe take a moment and just ask yourself some questions about community. And if you are being the kind of alternative community to this world that Jesus has been to us, are you loving and seeking and giving for the good of others to know the good of God? Jesus, I thank you so much for these moments that we share together today. God, I pray that your word would press on our hearts. I pray that it would open our eyes. I pray that it would create in us a longing for something more, a longing for something that matters. Jesus, I pray that some everyday revolutionaries would rise up in the house this morning. Some people who determine that their rhythms and that their natural patterns aren't working and that they want to walk in a different way. God, let us be an alternative to the narrative in community, in our world, to the narrative that tries to just push people into isolation, that tries to use technology as a savior. God, let us be difference makers. Jesus, I thank you so much that you gave up your life so that we could know life, so that we could have a place. And I pray today that as we take communion together as the body of Jesus, that we would just be reminded of that price that you paid and that it would inspire us to walk in your ways. We pray these things in the beautiful and in the matchless name of King Jesus and all God's people said, amen.
and amen.